Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and also to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply, because it would be a pleasure for us to also have you on the show with us. Um, I'm pleased to say that my guest on today's programme, on what is a warm, sunny morning here in the capital, is Ed Hoppett. Ed is the European Director for VMware, a software specialist that offers a breadth of digital solutions which power applications, services and experiences, enabling businesses and organizations to deliver the best customer service and empower their employees um ed welcome and thank you so much for joining us on today's show no thank you very much for having me it's great to be here with um, with so many people listening yeah, absolutely. And um, I think um, the first thing that we should do, Ed, for sure, is um, address sort of the context in which we're having this discussion. And that is the fact that we're recording this podcast in early June of 2021. And so even though we're at a point in time where social restrictions have gone relating to the COVID pandemic in England for the time being, we're still somewhat within the grip of the pandemic and have been for the best part of the last 16 months. And during that period of time, We've seen innovation from business on an unprecedented scale, haven't we? Businesses have overhauled their processes virtually overnight. They've replaced their systems. And that sort of quick changeover to sort of digital delivery of services has been critical to sort of keeping industry running during this time. And a lot of that, I think, is down to the ability to develop and deliver sort of applications into the hands of users um, as fast as possible. And we've seen that done very successfully. But is that because tailor-made solutions were sort of already there, do you think, for this? Or do business leaders who've sort of taken that time to make themselves that little more technologically savvy, do they also have to take some of the credit for that success, do you think? I think it's a great question, right? So um, digital skills in the boardrooms were previously something that was associated with a particular channel to market, a particular a particular route to, to, to customers and consumers. Um, yeah, I don't think they were seen as a, as a staple requirement. Um, and then on the twenty third of March last year, you know, Boris Johnson issued those words that I've seen resonated so many times, which is, you know, from tonight, I'm, I I need to tell you, you must stay at home. And so, you know, pretty much every organisation uh, in the UK suddenly found digital is their only channel for market, whether that was you know, someone sitting at the end of a call center, perhaps, if they could still keep the call centers open. Um, but for most, it was, it was if you don't have a digital channel for market, you, you now can't trade. And the impact that that had on decision-making, decision-making process was, was fascinating. And, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky in the role that I have, I, I get to spend my life talking to to CIOs, CTOs, and, and, and occasionally CEOs of, of, of major financial institutions, retail organizations, um, and, 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 and talking with them and, and helping them understand how they were going to pivot at that point was absolutely fascinating. Um, and, and you're right, the, the, the ones that had digital at the core of the boardroom, that, that, that had a digital understanding across the board were the ones that, that succeeded. Um, in, in making that pivot, the ones mm. 
assume digital had always been like a bolt-on. Um, you know, and, oh yeah, then there's, there's, there's a like, digital team over there. They they tended to be the ones that, that struggled. And, and and there were some interesting comparisons that you could do. Um, you know, just as just as a layman in understanding, you know, what that meant in terms of uh, customer interaction. Um, yeah, I, I don't know about you, Scott, but but I decided to spend you know, a big slice of lockdown um, doing some some DIY and stuff at home that I probably wouldn't otherwise have got, got time to do, and that meant I had to go and buy some supplies. And, and that was either delivery or click and collect. And what was fascinating was that you could almost split the, the, the major UK retail organisations into those who had clearly got a flexible platform. You know, that they, they built a truly digital platform that could scale uh, and those that didn't. And the ones who didn't, um, very often you'd go to their website to order something and a little message would pop up and it would say, hi, we're really busy at the moment. Um, the queue time to come to our website is 45 minutes. So please hold and we'll be with you. I didn't wait 45 minutes. I spent 45 minutes trying to find somewhere else to buy the things I was looking for and actually ended up building new retail affiliations, new brand loyalties with, with smaller, um, you know, perhaps online or more lightweight organizations that, that I hadn't ever even thought of doing business with in the past. And, and, and you know, to your point, you know, we're, we're now coming out of the end of the restrictions, but I have to admit those, those loyalties as a customer haven't changed. Um, I'm still doing business now, you know, when I want to buy some paint or something with, with the organizations that I, I realize have stepped up their game, you know, during the, for the last 18 months. Um, and, you know, that's an incredible, you know, layman's end user experience of one organization had digital at the core, they understood it, and the other organization had bolted a little digital platform onto their traditional way of doing business and now couldn't cope. I think you're very right. I think what the pandemic has essentially done there is it's accelerated digital transformation and it's exposed those that simply weren't prepared for that. And indeed, according to new research as well, I think it's 76% of global business leaders believe that it is that sort of technologically informed leadership that is the key to the success of their business now. So it's vital, isn't it? And the stats are showing that. Yeah. Um, yeah when, you, when you look at what's happening in terms of decision-making around, you know, I'll, I'll use the phrase digital transformation that covers a multitude of sins, but when you look at the decision-making that's going on behind that, you know, you'll find that, you know, very, very high percentage of organizations realize that they, they now need to focus on uh, what they're doing with software and what they're doing with applications, right? How am I going to use software to differentiate what I do? Or how am I going to use it to break into new markets? What's fascinating, though, is when you have a conversation with the same organization and say, great, so how far have you got? Um, I think the latest data that I saw said almost 50% haven't started. So there's this massive recognition. Uh, certainly, you know, pre-pandemic, there was this massive recognition that, that this is the new focus area. Um, you know, the, the, the things that previously people might not have seen as differentiated were going to become differentiated. And yet, there was these sort of barriers that were stopping people from ever getting there. Uh, if I remember rightly, it was you know the, the, the challenge of working out well where should I start first. You know, I, I was talking to a, to a, a UK financial institution just last week, um, and you know they are a, a very traditional organisation. You know, all of their value comes from their heritage, from their age, from their credibility. But actually, now all that's acting as some sort of analog anchor around their digital ambitions because. They're now trying to work out, well, like, oh, gosh, people people want money, access to their money same day. Well, that's really inconvenient for our processes. How on earth are we going to be able to deliver that? That, that isn't something we ever thought of doing. And so, yeah, they've got that challenge in them. 
the other great example that I give of, 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 of this kind of like challenge situation was, was a couple of years ago, but still a great example. Um, I, I um, had car insurance through a very traditional car insurance company. Um, and, and yeah, they sent me this email that told me about this amazing digital journey they were now going on and how, and how they were going to be an all digital organization. Uh, and I remember raising an eyebrow at the time because I, you know, I, I actually worked with this company as, as, as a customer and, 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 and you know, I was aware of some of the challenges they were having internally. And that all suddenly came to a head when I, I wanted to cancel my car insurance. Um, and so I said, look, you know, you know thanks, thanks for service, sold the car, canceling my insurance now. And they sent me an email um, that asked me if I would email back the, the, um, the insurance certificate to them so I no longer had it. It was, please surrender your, your insurance certificate by email. And I just wanted to write to them and go, I don't think that's how email works. I'm pretty sure you've just taken your analog process and tried to work out how to digitize it. Mm. That, that's not the way it works. And so, yeah, I, I get back to my first point, right? You, know, you, you see the, 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 the footprints of the truly digital organization um, tend, tend to be seamless because if they get it right, you don't notice it. The footprints of the digital organization that gets it wrong they send you an email asking you to email back an insurance certificate. You know that that that's not how you make that transition. Mm. And 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 that that DNA that's required to get it right is not by having one line of business that's about digital. Not by having you know someone who's head of digital. It's by having an understanding as to how digital is going to impact that customer journey, both in terms of retaining existing customers as well as growing you right at the heart of the boardroom of an organization. And, and, and if you can't do that, and if you don't do that, then you find yourself sitting in an oak-paneled room, metaphorically, slow with decision-making, slow with decisions, uh, and not being able to pivot at the speed that you need to in order to, 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 to change trajectory at the rate things were happening. So interesting that you mentioned that, Ed, because I actually had a discussion on the podcast recently where we talked about sort of chief information officers being on boards and then how their role is becoming ever more critical. And they essentially almost are sort of that head of digital, aren't they? And I think we're now having a discussion more broadly where all business executives on boards should now as part and parcel of their role actually be expected to sort of upskill somewhat into that sort of digital capacity because when it comes to implementing digital strategies it is important that everybody within the leadership of the business sort of knows that territory that little bit more and as I say can sort of bring about and execute and exactly what you talked about there. Yeah I mean digital is no longer about I've got an app and that's how my customers are going to communicate with me or talk to me or we have a website. Today it's around how do I build a digital supply chain how do I get insights into that supply chain to understand what's happening? How do I create the ability to, to manage people um, remotely so I can provide the ability for them to, to work in an agile way? They can pick the, the mode of work that works for them. Um, you know, so you find your, your, your chief HR officer suddenly has to understand how digital is going to become important for employee experience. Um, people within uh, manufacturing have to understand how am I going to leverage digital for a supply chain management solution where previously... Maybe it was quite an analog-based system. As you say, all the way through to that very traditional digital role of, you know, I'm in charge of the digital customer experience. Uh, and, and something I often reflect on is, you know, when you look at the companies that were born in the digital age, um, you know, when you look at an Uber, for example, right, you know, they don't have a chief digital officer. 
They don't need a chief digital officer because for them, the concept of not digital doesn't exist, right? The chief digital officer role that, you know, exists only in the companies that haven't got there yet is the irony. Um, and, and the job of that CDO is to try and work out how quickly they can make themselves redundant. Because the faster that CDO can make themselves redundant and have digital as the foundation of what's happening in that organization and have digital at the heart of all the decision-making and processes, then the quicker the journey they've taken that organization on. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, it's fascinating, you know, what, watching how companies, you know, adopt digital. Some have it as a, as a, as a, as a project. Some people have digital as a product. And some people have digital as an entire culture shift for an organization. Mm. And it's a culture shift organization where digital pervades all the elements of the organization as opposed to just being seen as a, as a route to market change that are, that are driving success. Yeah, of course. Um, it is, as you say there, about sort of developing a sort of whole digital supply chain as opposed to just the next generation application, for instance. But I suppose that next gen apps do have their sort of individual role to play in that ultimate digital supply chain, don't they? Because I suppose being able to develop that next gen application and then sustain and improve it, all of that is part of innovation and therefore important for a business to succeed, yes? And, and that's the million-dollar question, right? So the, 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 the toughest challenge that anyone has as they go through this journey is, is effectively answering a really simple question, which is, what should I run, where, and why? You know, what applications do I do I have in my portfolio that run my business that, that actually, you know what, they don't offer differentiated value? I'm going to keep them exactly as they are or retain them as they are. I don't need to do anything with them. But then how do I identify and understand the applications that I have in my portfolio that are going to bring differentiated end user value, that are going to bring a differentiated user experience. And then what am I going to do with those applications? You know, how am I going to evolve them? How am I going to modernize them? Uh, do I need to build something completely new? Do, do, do I actually you know, have, a, have a big gap in my application portfolio where I, I, I need a whole bunch of services that I don't currently have today and I'm going to have to go and build them? And, and, you know, when it comes down to brass tacks and the implementation of a digital strategy, it, it's helping organizations answer that question of what should I run, where, and why that becomes challenging. And, 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 and effectively, they're the conversations that I have in my day job working for VMware day to day. You know, it, it's how do I help customers understand which applications should I retain? And for those, it's all about how do I simply optimize the cost? How do I ensure that they maintain a security posture? How do I keep them running in the most cost-efficient way? And eventually, they're going to be the retired applications. Then you've got sort of the applications that you might look to re-platform or refactor, right? So they're the applications that by making some changes to the way they work or some changes to the architecture of the application, I can get more out of them. So, for example, maybe I change the application so that, so that when thousands of people suddenly come to my website wanting to buy paint, the website has the ability to auto-scale so I don't end up having to put one of those little queuing signs up at the front that says, hey, sorry, folks, we're really busy. Um, if you wouldn't mind waiting 45 minutes, we can let you into the website. And then finally, you've got which of the applications or what new applications am I going to write from scratch? So what am I going to rewrite from scratch? Or, or, or what new applications might I want to write? And, and how am I going to do that? You know, I may not have an internal developer organization. My, my life may have been, we take very traditional applications, we take off-the-shelf services, we do a bit of customization, and, and that's then what, what, we, what we use within, within the business. And so it's understanding what are you going to do. And they're referred to as the five R's very frequently. Mm. You've got retain, retire, refactor, replatform. 
platform rewrite. And it's deciding what you're going to do with those, those options that, that is what's going to um, produce the direction you're going to take that strategy on. But it's all effectively just answering one question. What should I run where and why? And, and, and that's a tough question that people are effectively, iteratively, constantly asking themselves to make sure they've got the right apps running in the right way, um, in, in the right place. And, and certainly, you know, uh, so the focus from, from, from what I do at VMware is, 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 is showing customers how you know, we can help them ensure that, that they've got an answer wherever any of those um, options might take them. Exactly right. And once you've got to the point where you've actually identified those priority apps that you want to retain, um, sort of modernizing them, it comes with its own set of challenges, doesn't it? And that's usually because these sort of next generation services, they've got to deliver experiences at speed whilst also being consistently innovative as well. So if we look at something as simple as, say, airline booking services, they've got to sort of allow regular access, not have people queuing up onto the site, as you mentioned before briefly. They've got to handle data from various different sources um, and balance all of that together and then produce that outcome that delivers that customer experience that you've spoken about so regularly. And supporting and enhancing those attributes, it requires a lot of things, doesn't it? It requires that flexibility and that scalability, but also the security concerns have got to be spot on as well to make sure that that information isn't vulnerable to being sort of taken away by sort of illicit people. So it means that being able to use environments such as sort of public and private cloud um, that best meets the need of the apps themselves, that's important. And that really does bring some complexity, doesn't it? Because you've got to be able to sort of create and deploy apps very quickly. Um, And then I think the answer to being able to sort of deal with this is, a digital foundation, isn't it, that can be a common platform for apps to be consistently produced quickly. And that's got to have consistent management, consistent operations. I mean, that's the best sort of way of looking at scalability, I think, isn't it, based on what we've talked about today? No, absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, the, 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 the number of conflicting requirements that, that people have to deal with when they're trying to go through modernizing applications at pace whilst servicing user needs is, 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 is huge. I mean, you know, someone, you know, a great, a great phrase from, from, from Adrian Cockcroft, who is, who's one of the guys credited with, with a lot of the technology innovation behind the early Netflix days. He said the only way to drive up the rate of change is to drive down the cost, risk, and size of change. And that's effectively what we see people doing, moving to these new application technologies. Really what they're doing is they're taking the big thing that was too hard to wrestle with, they're finding the bits of it that have real value. They're breaking those bits off and innovating on those in a new, smaller way so that the elements of the application become decoupled from each other. They talk to each other via, via common interfaces and common APIs. And, and now I can, I can have a team that is solely focused, solely focused on, um, on ticket search, for example. And, and, and their only job within, within the airline is to build the ticket search function for the, for the mobile app and for the website. And ticket search talks to everything else via a set of, of common interfaces. But that's effectively what you're seeing, right? People are trying to drive up this rate of change mm. by driving down the cost, risk, and size of change. Um, and your second point about the consistent platform, that's the other place that we really see people struggling. Um, you know, very often we see people saying, look, we're going to have a cloud-first strategy, right? Our approach is going to be cloud-first. And that's great, but, but what you quickly realize is that cloud or, or a particular cloud is actually just going to form one of a number of choices that you're going to make around how you want to run those applications and run IT. You know, having a having an all um, yeah 
all in on one particular cloud, you know, 20 years ago would have been a bit like saying, I have an all compact strategy. You know, that, that, that would never have happened. Um, and, and it wouldn't have helped you, and, and, and it's not helping today. And so what we're seeing is customers going into, in, into a truly multi-cloud world. They're wanting to have you know, these elements they want to have on-prem, you know, set of different elements they want to run across the public cloud, but they want portability and they want those public cloud environments to, to be able to talk back to the private environment that they've got. And so you know, it, it's the customer that can now wrangle that multi-cloud challenge um, bring some consistency to how they manage those clouds, how consistency to how they operate across those clouds, and consistency to how they deploy applications across those clouds that are the ones that are, that are, that are starting to succeed at this. And you know, again, back to the, the, the day jobs that I have at VMware, you know, much, of, much of my time um, is spent talking around you know, some of VMware's cloud management technology, um, some of our, our, our portfolio around Tanzu, which is all about building modern apps. Um, but, but, but they're all coming together, effectively helping um, solve that problem of what do I run, where, and why? Um, and then to the where, that becomes the cloud question. Where am I going to run it? Where's the right place for this to be? And why is it the right place? Um, and, and so what you tend to find is that the technology questions are the easy ones to answer. The hard questions are all the why. Why should I put it there? Why should we do that? Where's the right place to invest next? What's the right thing to go to next? And that's the decision that leaders are faced with, isn't it? And I think what we have established during this discussion is that leadership with technology very much at its heart and its DNA. And then, as we talked about just now, that digital foundation that helps accelerate the pace of delivering new apps and delivering new services. I think those are the real key elements, aren't they, for businesses to continue to operate and survive in the face of disruption and enable them to sort of make those quick and decisive decisions on why and build that resilience and really keep driving that innovation forward. Those are the key two aspects, aren't they? That technological yeah. sort of savvy leadership and then that digital foundation. Yeah, you, 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 you know, coming full circle back to where we started, if you don't have a tech-savvy leadership in the boardroom that understands the potential and the ability of technology, both to change what's happening internally, but also keep pace with what's happening externally, you find yourself in a very difficult place. Because the people within the organization who do understand find themselves constantly having to challenge to explain why the approach they're taking, which might be different from the traditional, is the right approach going forward. And that's a culture clash that can happen there. But secondly, if you don't end up with that kind of digital foundation across all the elements of the business, as we said, from supply chain to HR, to, 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 to marketing, to the customer engagement, um, you will also fragment the way the digital strategy plays out in the organization. And, and you'll end up with, with empires of innovation where people are, right, I've got the digital message. They've said we're going digital. Um, I'm going to do that in my world, in my way. You end up in these little empires of digital innovation and, and you fragment the value that, these, that the overall organization can get. So again, the leadership is key. If, if, if the people looking up don't have credibility, mm. or don't have, don't have, have faith in, in the, the leaders of the organization, that they really get it. Uh, then you will really struggle to drive that change down to the organisation. And ultimately, the consequences of that are not being able to attract, engage and retain customers and employees and your competitiveness simply won't be optimised and that ultimately is a slippery slope for business, isn't it? Yeah, and, 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 yeah that's a horrible place to be. And, and you know, if, you, if you suddenly realise that your digital strategy is about customer retention as opposed to customer acquisition, 
the red alarm bells, the red lights, the sirens should be going off because you're having to use digital to keep up with the competition, to try and avoid the competition eroding your customers. What you should be doing is looking to digital to accelerate customer acquisition. It should be about new features that are allowing you to define the customer experience and for you to define what's going on in the market. That's where digital has its most power. If you think that digital is about customer retention solely, then you have a massive problem on your hands already. And what you need to do is you need to step back, look at the strategy, and say to yourself, okay, I have a retention issue. I can deal with that over here. But what I have to do at the same time as solving that retention problem is I need a completely separate group of people to be thinking about what's going to be needed for customer acquisition. And normally, the retention problems and the use cases and what you're doing are going to look very different from what you're doing for new customer acquisition. Plenty of food for thought for business leaders on the uh, the podcast today, for sure. Um, Ed, I have to say, it's been fantastic having you join us to talk all things digital. Really, really enjoyed having you on the show with us. And it's sad that our time on the program is drawing to a close this morning because I could literally speak about this with you all day. But just before we do sort of wrap things up on the program this morning, um, I do want to talk about the future as well, because that's ultimately what this discussion is about, sort of being able to enable business to optimize their competitiveness, not just today, but also in the future in the new digital age. And with that in mind, over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, as we sort of hopefully can leave social restrictions and the pandemic behind somewhat, what are sort of your priorities going to be over at VMware? And where do you really see yourselves this time in the next couple of years? So there's two big priorities for us at the moment. Um, The first priority is, is, is in enabling businesses to step up the shift that's happened in working practices. Um, so, you know, people, um, I was having a conversation with someone just this morning, and they're, they're, they're a solicitor um, in a very traditional law practice that, that previously said everyone has to come in, you have to sit in an office, or literally the world will implode. Um, and, and they have to realize that that's not the case anymore. You can work from home, you can have flexible working. And so, you know, through the strategies that we have with our digital workspace platform, you know, one of our focuses now, and, and a huge, you know, sudden area of customer interest is how do we enable people, um, organizations, to give people the ability to work from anywhere. Alongside that, um, you know, the other thing that we're seeing is massive interest and traction around what we're doing with helping people balance that multi-cloud challenge. How do I build a true multi-cloud strategy where I get value from having multiple clouds as opposed to getting bogged down in complexity? And across that strategy, how am I going to modernize those applications? How am I going to have the conversations that I need to have and who's going to help me have them to understand where I should go and focus. So, so yeah, those, those two things. It's the employee experience, ensuring that you can retain those employees who have got used to this new way of life that, that want flexibility to go to the office a few days a week. And at the same time, how do we help customers build a really solid foundation for that application modernization journey across cloud? Some fantastic stuff and plenty to certainly get your teeth into over the course of the uh, the next uh, few months and years, it sounds, Ed. And I have to say, I mean, I would love to actually catch up at some point in the next sort of eight or nine months and have you back on the show, perhaps, just to sort of see how things are getting along and really making that vision a reality and talk about how you've been helping businesses really capitalise on that. Absolutely. would love to. It'd be awesome to carry the conversation on. I would love that as well, Ed. It's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the program with us. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, also do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world as well, because we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet, but we're really sort of taking the positives forward, we're using it to innovate, and hopefully better days are certainly ahead of us. 
it was a pleasure to welcome Ed Hoppett, European Director at VMware, onto the podcast today. And here on the Leaders' Council podcast, we do, of course, enjoy bringing forward a variety of distinct perspectives on the topic of leadership. And therefore, we'll be joined next on the programme by Lord Blunkett, Chairman here at the Leaders' Council and former Education Secretary, of course. Um, Lord Blunkett will be discussing some of his thoughts on the last 16 months with the global pandemic, as well as his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead, which will hopefully yield a period of economic recovery upon which business can capitalise. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000. All all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more 
creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent, to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest uh, history, and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually. Uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because 
Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the 
for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, Mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it 
tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, 
but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to t- be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it what's the one king uh, key thing that secure needs to do to restore labor as an election winning party i think secure starmer's major challenge is to convince Skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism. He has the forensic uh, mindset and he has the 
confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.